Welcome to Our Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. I'm Bead. And this is a podcast where we explore the world of contemporary art against Dad's will. Yes, well, there is uh, sometimes a degree of reluctance, but sometimes I've proved receptive. So um, we'll see how we go this evening. Uh, well, last week we talked about a gun, and this week we're moving on to another form of weaponry for part of what we'll be talking about, and that's a cannon. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, that does sound very interesting. We're going up in, in scale. <laughs> yeah, soon we'll be talking about, I don't know, atomic weapons, although I don't know how effective that would be as an art form, negative space, I guess. Have you heard of the artist Anish Kapoor? No, not until um, I uh, you sent me links to his work in preparation for this podcast. I must say I hadn't heard of him at all. So he's another winner of the Turner Prize, unlike Tracy Emin, who you didn't like, who didn't win the Turner Prize, but everyone thinks she did. Oh, uh, yeah, that was won by the motorcyclist Steve McQueen. Oh, God. Um, he's, a, he's a British Indian sculpture, sculptor and installation artist, and so he was born in Mumbai and then went to boarding school in England. He's really well known for Cloudgate. Do you know that reflective sculpture in the shape of a bean in Chicago? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm not familiar with that. It's in, you know, some movies and um, things like that, but, you know, it's sort of a reflective very rounded shape and yes looks like a a bean which sort of sits up on its curved side um but today we're not going to be talking about that work we're going to be talking about this canon but also about color oh well i love color in in art so a promising start i can say that (laughs) you're not always very good with color though because sometimes you know you'll say to like mum oh I really like your orange dress and you know we'll both say it's red or you'll say I like that pink flower and we'll say it's orange well I mean I think that you know isn't isn't it all about perception and who's to say whose perception is right and wrong I think you know you need to broaden your horizons and I long wanted to say that in relation to art and here's my opportunity (laughs) I do remember you know that um when I was doing that first year philosophy course and we talked about that thought experiment, Mary's room, you know, about the girl who grows up in a black and white room and she doesn't know what colour is. And I remember having some intense ex- conversations with you trying to figure out that thought experiment. Yeah, I do remember that. And then there was another thing that they spent an awful long, lot of time on, on Turing's experiments or questions as to how you determine whether someone is a sentient being and um you, you know it's uh that's quite intriguing and then there was a film uh, um about that um about the turing test oh, where ex person, yes had all these androids in his secured house in the mountains but he you know they they were able to converse but he omitted to give them a sense of right and wrong and the outcome wasn't very good so yeah one has to be careful here much like raising children you should feel yeah happy. yeah or maybe not about the sense <laughs> of right and wrong you've instilled in me anyway um the first work we're going to be talking about a couple of things today but the first work we're talking about is shooting into the corner yes i had a look at this um and it's I mean, do, would you like me to um, explain what I saw and then comment on it? <laughs> sure, go ahead. 
Okay, so it's a person, well, I presume the artist, who is loading a wax ball into a steel tube with a firing mechanism, and he fires it off through an archway in a in a museum into onto the wall of the adjacent room, and there's a it's complete with the sound effect of a real cannon firing, and you know I, I must say that there's plenty of ammunition for critique here on my part um and my immediate reaction to this is that it's just derivative and i've long wanted to use that word derivative because it's such a an art critic type word in our um podcast and here's the opportunity because isn't this exactly the sort of thing that was being done in the dusseldorf academy in the early 1960s I, I seem to remember in, in that brilliant film, Never Look Away, where uh, Gerhard, or the character playing Gerhard Richter, um, turns up at the academy. Aren't there people who are throwing paint at the walls or shooting arrows that burst paint, painted balloons on the walls? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of that. And actually, I mean, maybe you know more about art history than you'd care to admit because... Um, Kapoor accounts among the artists that he's really inspired by and who've influenced him, Joseph Boyce, who, of course, was a, a professor at that Dusseldorf School of Art that you're talking about. And, I mean, he is also someone who worked with very tactile materials, you know, like the um, the fat and the felt, which really goes to what is happening here with Kapoor. So, what is so he developed this cannon with a group of engineers and it, they're 11 kilogram balls of wax but it's mixed with oil paint to give it this color which is pretty much always red and in that way you know he so what he's doing here is he's thinking of color as being stuff you know the color becomes the work itself the medium the material becomes the work and when you see it spread you know burst on these white walls you know it's a very drastic effect with color books it's these clean white white cube walls like you would expect in a contemporary gallery splattered and covered with these very thick pieces of this wax you know it's very gooey it almost looks like you know if you chopped up a stick of lipstick and smeared it on the wall that's what it would look like yeah I mean it, it does look um sort of what what is the word almost mud-like in its consistency and and it adheres to the wall but splatters everywhere all over the floor as well but to go back to your comment of it being derivative do you think that that undermines the work i'm getting the sense that you don't quite like it yeah well your your antenna are are increasing in their sensitivity because you're spot on i mean <laughs> what what is actually going on here why is this novel and dare i raise the boogeyman again why is this art i mean let me give you a, 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 a what might be called as a flashback for me but a revelation for you <laughs> um when i was growing up for a period um, my parents and i lived in ireland and the house we were in um, was adjacent to this much larger house that had a a shed and one of the walls of the shed was a very um sort of uh rough 
hewn concrete you know how you see the little stones coming out of the concrete mm. and I used to find it entertaining if my parents asked me to do the washing up and there were tea bags left in the bottom of the teapot to go outside and fling them against the wall and so you'd have all these little tea bags with the tags hanging down and I'd wait and see how long it took them to notice that they were on the wall and to reprimand me and tell me to take them off now I mean I was just fooling around, making a mess on the wall with the tea bags. Was that art? Well, I would say probably, <sighs> God, you know, this question rears its head every week. I would say not. I mean, it wasn't your intention. Um, it was play. And, I mean, there are theorists who draw links, you know, from a human behaviour perspective between play and art. I mean, there's one theorist who, her name is uh, Ellen, I think Ellen de Sinaica, and she, you know, had this theory about, you know, what makes something art. And, you know, she starts this article talking about how at first she thought, well, maybe it was, maybe it was all rooted in play and sort of the associations with learning, you know, that come alongside that. And that's the reason why we do it. Um, but it's a particular kind of play. But then she said no, that it was actually something broader and the, you know, test, if you want to talk about it legally, that she put forward was that art is making special. So it's when you have something but you make it special in some way, I guess, to like elevate it above the ordinary class of thing. Okay, well, getting back to... Kapoor's shooting into the corner. What's the specialness here? I mean, is it the fact that he uses the cannon to um, splatter his paint? Well, yes, I think it would be, I guess, the web of elements that he's using a cannon in a place of art, which you wouldn't expect. You know, that's a point of interest, something special, if you um, would say that. And then he's using wax, colourful wax in the canon. I mean, the interesting thing about Kapoor is that he says that, well, he emphasises that for him it's the importance of the viewer and their personal engagement rather than any meaning he intends. So he sort of says that he doesn't have any particular message to give or something in particular to say, which makes his works you know, I guess it's like an experiment for us to find, well, what is the specialness for us here? And you sort of have this free association experiment, which is really heightened here because, you know, Kapoor himself mentions the associative realities we have with colour. You know, when you see a particular colour, you have associations. You know, you might think blue in the sky or the ocean, but there are very obvious associations with the colour red, especially when you couple it with a cannon. Yeah, I mean it's it's quite violent in that in that scenario. And I mean, if we're talking about the reaction of the viewer, what would be interesting, and you, you might not know the answer to this, is are people in the gallery allowed to touch the wax? Um, and you know, I see this from some of the other pictures that he has other um, wax shapes that he's made. You know, is one allowed to go and touch them or or not? Because that would certainly enhance the experience. Well, 
I saw this work also, it's been shown in various galleries. I saw it at the Venice Biennale and it wasn't firing at the time. It was, the, I guess, the aftermath of the, the shooting. So the cannon wasn't going, but you couldn't touch it, which I guess also raises very, you know, interesting ideas of, you know, we have as people this desire to touch things and to feel them and to use all of our senses, but the barrier that the museum setting places normally between us and the art in that way creates, I guess, generates a desire to touch something that you can't touch. Yeah, and in fact, many's the time that both Mummy and you have reprimanded me for wanting to touch things in shops or touch things in galleries and and so I'm being denied the full artistic experience. So maybe it's I who have met the avant-garde of art <laughs> appreciation. And all these stick in the muds who just want to look at it, um, you know, aren't aren't the real deal and aren't the true um aficionados. God. You're really using some mental gymnastics to try and turn the tables on me. I think we should move on to the next work, but I wanted to raise an anecdote which I thought you might have raised because, you know, you don't like this work, which is Tchaikovsky's feelings about his own 1812 overture. Oh, it's a a famous piece of music and I, I quite enjoy it. I love it too, but he was he ended up feeling very embarrassed by it. He described it as very loud and noisy and completely without artistic merit, obviously written without warmth and love. And, of course, what's the, I guess, the core sound element or um, peak moment of that overture? Well, it's the use of cannon as the actual, as a musical instrument. Yeah, and so apparently, um, yeah, he ended up feeling very, sort of, I guess, embarrassed by the overt grandeur of this but apparently (laughs) it was a bit of a mess when he tried to put it on the first time because he'd overestimated how easy it was going to be to get the cannons to fire at the exact right point yeah that would be a a real challenge i mean particularly if as in those days um the cannon used a fuse so it would all depend on when you put your taper to the fuse and how long it took the fuse to burn so yeah it could be very difficult but hopefully Kapoor doesn't feel as embarrassed by this work um, as Tchaikovsky did, although maybe you think he should. Yeah, I, I think I do. And I mean, there. Are, before we go on to the next work, I mean, just to show that I've actually given my full attention to all this and I've really thought about it, I had a look at some of the other works in the links that you sent me. And I mean, one of them looks like a, a bath plug on a gigantic scale. The... Um, uh, I think it's called Dissension, and it, it just looks like a, a, a very large sort of 100 times size bath plug hole with water swirling around and going down in the middle. So, yeah, I was very um, uh, sceptical as to whether or not that should be in a museum or at least in the public spaces. <laughs> well, I guess it's a special bath plug. That's what makes it art. Yeah, right. Right. You really are. You're the one who's scraping the bottom of the barrel, I think. (laughs) Well, maybe you'll like this next work better. It's called Svayambu, and it's a a name that comes from a Sanskrit word meaning self-generated or auto-generated. And I've sent you a picture of that as well. Would you like to describe that one? Yeah, well, this is a... um... 
like a, a long steel platform um, that goes through a museum, including through doorways. And on it is a massive block of red wax. And I mean, it's, you know, it's probably about three or four meters high and two or three meters across. And it's situated on this rail. And by some mechanism or other, it's being pushed along the rail. So it leaves a trail of wax behind it. But then when it comes to a doorway with an arch in this instance, um, the wax is soft enough for the door lintel to shave off the wax and for the remaining wax that is pressed through the doorway to retain the shape of the doorway. So, you know, this is, I would have entitled it, you know, wax going through a door as a more honest um, title. Well, I, the reason why I guess he's making these references to ideas of self-generation or auto-generation is that he's, he, you know, admits that he's sort of setting up this myth or fiction of the object making itself. So he acknowledges that it's a fiction that the object is making itself, but it's sort of playing on these ideas, I guess, of the work without author and also of the playing on the idea of how space can make, but metaphorically, the object. You know, how does the space in which an object is displayed or the institutions in which it's displayed change it, change it. So, you know, his premise, I guess, is that he sets up the space and then, quote, lets it occur. Um, so again, here, you know, he also has this idea of the importance of the viewer and their own engagement rather than anything that he's done. So what do you think of this work? I mean, I, I, I'm, I just think this is really, really pretentious to say that the art is affected by the space. I mean, the medium is affected by, i.e. the wax, um, coloured wax is affected by the machine that that he has he has created for it to run on, um, and I think you know although he he admits that it's a fiction, well I think therein lies the whole problem with this. It's it's nothing um, to do with I don't think space. It's just to do with oh look, let's see what happens if we squeeze wax through a doorway. <laughs> You're so literal, Dad. <laughs> which you know i think we need to save some stories for another time but there are many many examples of you not grasping the power of metaphor and i'm sure you know exactly what i'm referring to yeah well let's not leave the listeners intantalized i mean let's <laughs> let's get let's swallow the pill and you tell them the story i read i think for school slaughterhouse five this book in which you know a man who was involved in I think it was the bombing of Dresden is traumatized as he would be when he goes back home to the US and has a he believes that he's been abducted by aliens but of course it's of course it's all this metaphor about I guess trying to escape the trauma so then I recommended this book to dad because you know, you like war and you like aliens and things, but you thought that he really was abducted by aliens. Well, 
I remember asking you, so what happened when he was abducted? And then you rolled around laughing, saying, ha, oh, he wasn't really abducted. It was all in his mind. But the thing is, there was nothing in the book to say that his experience wasn't what he was actually undergoing. And to me, this is a failure of the author, not me taking it too literally. I mean, if I accept that there could be aliens <laughs> in, my, in my reality, and therefore <laughs> this book made perfect sense to me. So you were just thinking what an interesting life this guy has led, first yeah. in World War II, then abducted by aliens. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, maybe I'll give you a more concrete example of how this work's been displayed and maybe you'll like it better because sometimes you can say that the building has a special significance. So it's also been displayed in the House der Kunst. Oh, okay. So that's the massive squat um, German or Munich uh, gallery, which was, um, I don't know if it was built during the Nazi era, but it was certainly where they displayed their favourite art. Yeah, so it was where they had that great, well, so-called great German art exhibition, you know, that the Nazis held, and then they had the degenerate art exhibition nearby. And oh, and that was the one which had lots of sculptures of athletes who looked like me. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you, do you really want to align yourself in that way? with? No, I'm not aligning myself with the ideology, just the physique of the statues. <laughs> Um, yes, that's the one. Um, <laughs> so obviously, as you say, this building, you know, it really has um, all, I guess, elements of fascist architecture, very hard-edged, very rectilinear. And so when the wax goes through the doorways in that building, which are very square, you know, it picks up those architectural ideals. And you also, you know, in this manner of free association, because the wax is on rails, and this is something that Kapoor himself has said, that the rails become like the train tracks to the concentration camps. Okay, well, I can I can understand the metaphor. Um, I hadn't realised that this is like a travelling exhibition. So does he set up blocks of wax in different spaces? It's not just this one event. Yeah, so maybe you could have one go through our house and it'll pick up a whole lot of cat fur and things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's been displayed in lots of different places. And so when you compare it, I mean, you can pick up another example which will maybe help you along with the metaphors. You know, another place where it's been on show is the Royal Academy in London. And so you could say that, you know, as it moves through the space, that metaphor becomes about how the Academy's strict ideas about art making, which we discussed in episode 13, can affect artist practices. Yeah, okay, I can I can see that that link. But again, I suppose that does rely on the viewer making that connection um, with that particular space. I mean, if you if you talk about it. If you talk about this being done in special spaces, then I'm a bit closer to accepting the validity of the whole work. But just in any arbitrary gallery, um, I think is is not sufficient for that link to be made. Yeah, maybe Kapoor didn't reckon with a viewer like you when he was saying that you can just leave the viewer to look at it themselves. 
<laughs> or maybe maybe he should come to my level. I won't say whether up or down, um, and and broaden his broaden the the the, the scope of um, of his art and to embrace a wider um, what's the word um, customer mix or customer base. You're sounding very corporate there. Um, maybe yeah. it's time to move on to the next um, thing that we're going to talk about, which isn't a specific piece. It's a bit of art world gossip. And I know you have a secret love of gossip. Yeah, let's, let's hear it. Okay, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, if the art world had a version of new idea that you could flick through at the checkout, it would be in there. So in 2016, Kapoor bought exclusive artistic rights to the world's so-called blackest black and it's a material called Vanta Black, which was developed by Surrey Nanosystems and it absorbs 99.965% of visible light. Wow. Um, I mean, it'll be very interesting to test that and to have a black cat stand next to it and see if the cat sort of disappears against the background. Yeah, well, maybe you can write to him and suggest it because the the issue here is that it, he bought exclusive rights to it. So he used it in a heap of, um, and still does, uh, sculpture works which give the appearance of complete flatness. So when you confront them in a gallery space, you might look at them, you know, standing in front of you or on a wall and it just looks like a, a flat black circle or square or whatever. But then as you walk to the side of them or around them, you see that they are complete shapes, you know, can be very deep or um, have completely different, you know, bubbly patterns on them or whatever. So because they're so black, you don't see that when you just look at them straight on. Okay, well, now this is interesting. I mean, this is, and I'll again draw out of my vast grab bag of art historical terms. Isn't this a trompe day? um and um, yeah. you know so and i mean i i like that i appreciate that so you know maybe he's onto a winner here let's forget about the red blocks being pushed through the walls and um and focus on on his um his uh, tricks of the eye yeah well i'm glad that you like this but i i think maybe you'll like it even more as i add more to the controversy so because it was exclusive other artists got very riled up and they said that he was stealing from the artistic community by making um, himself, you know, the the person with exclusive artistic rights to this material because, of course, he could buy it directly from this company that was making it. So then another artist named Stuart Semple created a pigment, which he said is the world's pinkest pink, and he put that on sale online on the conditions that purchasers agreed to a specific term, which was, and I'll read it now, by adding this product to your cart, you confirm that you are not Anish Kapoor, you are in no way affiliated to Anish Kapoor, and you are not purchasing this item on behalf of Anish Kapoor or an associate of Anish Kapoor. To the best of your knowledge, information and belief, this paint will not make its way into the hands of Anish Kapoor. Wow, he's obviously taken a lot of legal advice in drafting that. It's a watertight term, isn't it? Yeah, so, you know, he sort of flipped it on its head and made... Um, this pink is pink available to everyone except Anish Kapoor and the drafting, yeah, as it's very um watertight, as you say. Yeah. It's um so I mean there's obviously a great deal of tension going on here yeah. in this um niche of the art world. 
And then it got even worse for Anish Kapoor because there's now a product blacker than Vanta Black, which was developed by MIT, I think, in 2019, which absorbs 99.995% of invisible light, of visible light. Wow. Uh, you really have to have a soot black cat to <laughs> conceal itself in front of that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I do like that our reference point uh, for any piece of art is cat-related. Yes. <laughs> Which, yeah, maybe we should do an episode about Ai Weiwei or Andy Warhol to actually talk about cats more directly. But, um, yeah, I mean, what do you think of that little art world incident? Well, that's that's interesting. And I... I, I um... It's it's another interesting intersection between art and law and the restrictions that law can place on reproduction, and um, but as I say, you know, it's it's like a a um, person who's heading for a train wreck, and then suddenly the line, the 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 switches are divert the train away from the wall. Because I think with the last work, you actually won me over, even though I didn't really like the first two. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that I did them in that order. Otherwise, I think it would have been quite a depressing end to the episode. So, I mean, would you say that overall you like Anish Kapoor or do you just make an exception for these banter black works? Just just for the black works, I think. Okay. Well, that's good. Then you don't have any of your usual issues with identifying colours, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, would you rather have access to the pinkest pink or the blackest black, do you think? Um, perhaps. I don't know which would be more useful. Um, maybe he should also develop a range of of wax blocks that can be used, you know, and let, let's keep up our allusion to cats, you know, sort of a one that's got um, is basically black but with shots of gold through it for a tabby and um, obviously a white one and a grey one and all these different blocks could be used very tastefully around a museum with cats in front of them and you know the public invited to see if they can actually see the animal against the block. Yeah I like it I think it's a good idea you shouldn't have released on this podcast because you could have launched your own artistic career with that yeah actually be interesting I mean I'm sure he would have to do it on a smaller scale because Vantablack is very expensive but to see those uh wax on rail works with Vantablack yeah would imagine Um, the illusion of it going through the doorway would be very interesting it would almost look like a, a um wormhole in space and to time yeah um yeah so nice blend of science and art there do you have any advice leading out from yeah i i think that i my advice is really a qualification of my complaint that makes sense about (laughs) not being able to touch things in museums because i remember once and so this is more advice for parents you can see um that i've learned a lot through raising you and the (laughs) Advice I would have is not to allow your children to try and touch things or even get close to them in art galleries. Because I remember once we were in the National Art Gallery in Canberra and there was a piece which I suppose you'd consider art, but I just thought was silly, of a half rubber tire nailed to the wall. 
and you went up to have a look at it and suddenly alarms began going and the, the normal normally placid um a gallery guards all came rushing over and i had to quickly shepherd you away and say no she's not here to destroy the art and yeah so maybe just you know keep your kids on a leash in a gallery i'm sure if it had gotten any um more serious with the guards you would have launched into it she's not even it's not art that she's touching so what's the yes (laughs) um great well i'm glad that we came to an overall positive review of Kapoor. Uh, Next episode, we're going to be talking about Oppenheim's object or breakfast in fur. Wow. Uh, I wonder if this is another cat thing. Anyway, I'll wait to (laughs) look forward to finding out. I'm sure even if it's not a cat thing, we will make it into a cat thing, which is a good outcome. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. As always, you can see images of the works we discussed in the link and in the episode description. And if you would like to follow, rate or review our podcast, that would be fantastic. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye bye.